From KCRW, this is Nocturne. It's the worst suffering. It's the worst suffering. Not knowing where your child is in the middle of the night. It really, it's, it, it's indescribable. You can't really put words to it. That's why it's so hard to talk about. We can probably, most of us imagine, even if our kids are little, maybe you give a curfew as a teen and then they were an hour too late. Like that would be hard, right? So it's like that times infinity. <laughs> it's just, because if you know they're actually, they're out there and they really actually are doing something life-threatening to themselves or putting themselves in situations with people that, that aren't safe or, yeah, it's really bad. It's really bad. My daughter was an intravenous drug user and um, from her 16th birthday to her 17th birthday, I actually didn't live with her very much during that whole year. So she was either missing, I would call it, where she was out using drugs and I wouldn't know where she was, or she was hospitalized, or she'd be getting treatment. I have so many sort of like angel stories. Like there was a young man and he asked me, how's your daughter doing? He's talking about my older daughter. And he says, I worked at the pizza place on Telegraph. He told me that he saw my daughter up there and he knew what was happening. And he says, after I got off work, it was very late. And I would drive all around till I'd find her and I'd give her pizza. And sometimes I couldn't find her, so I would just go to other people and go, do you know this? And if they knew her, I would, I would give them the pizza and say, will you please make sure she gets the pizza? When you see young people on the street, I think we tell ourselves that they don't have a family or they're, you know, we might have empathy for them. We're thinking maybe they're a foster kid or been kicked out of their family. That might be true for some of them. Everyone has a different story. Everyone has a different journey to being out there and also to getting well. But I think most people have someone in their life that cares about them, that's missing them, that's wondering and worrying. More from Nocturne in a moment. I'm Warren Alney. On To The Point, if America ever used its thousands of nuclear weapons, it would be suicidal. In a nuclear war, there could be no winners. Everybody is a loser. All of civilization is at stake. We've known that for 75 years, but our weapons of mass destruction are still on hair-trigger alert, and just one man, President Trump, has the power to push the button. Is it finally time to make the world safer? On our To The Point podcast... Listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe.
When my older daughter was 16, she very quickly became addicted to drugs. So that's seven years ago. She would say her drug of choice was methamphetamine, and she explains that it, it helped calm her down. And she wasn't only using methamphetamine, she was using heroin. She was doing a lot of molly when one of her runs out there. She was doing multiple different kinds of substances. And um, from her 16th birthday to her 17th birthday, she just wasn't with me very much of that year, like sleeping at home. She was either missing or in the hospital for periods of time when I could find her and she would be on a 5150 hold. Or then sometimes she'd be in these group homes with other teens who were in crisis, like mental health crisis. And then she was also in residential treatment facilities. I mean, the, the worst suffering, the worst possible suffering was when she was gone and he didn't know where she was. I found out later, of course, where she was. You know, this is the reason to keep yourself connected to your kids. They will tell you things. <laughs> they share. They share when they feel like they can trust you. But I would find out after the fact. Was it as bad as I could have imagined? Sometimes it was worse. My name is Kristen. I was born and raised in Berkeley, California. I have two daughters and they're aged uh, 14 and 23. With seemingly no warning, Kristen's older daughter went from having mostly normal teenage problems to battling full-blown addiction. It was incredibly obvious. <laughs> this was not like a slow progression into this situation. It was just a couple months. It was really quick. Uh, not long before that, we had gone to her cousin's uh, 15th birthday. She's a Latina on her dad's side, so it's a quinceanera. And she had sung at that event and wore a beautiful dress and had her nails and hair done. I knew she was using because everything changed about her um, behavior and her physical appearance. And even I remember uh, sitting in the back seat of the car thinking maybe I saw track marks on her in her hands and arms, but I wasn't sure what if that's what it was. She's already a tiny. She was a very small teenager and very thin, like, like all the women in my family, but she dropped weight really fast in a way that looked dangerous. And she was much more angry than I've ever seen her, ever. Shockingly so. All of these changes were in stark contrast to who her daughter was up to that point. So my daughter was born, and she was always a superstar. She was social, outgoing. She was always a performer. And the thing about my daughter is every single thing she ever tried, she was good at. The first time she ever played a soccer game at seven years old, she scored the winning goal. She just really was the star of our family. And she eventually ended up going to performing arts, middle school and high school. Despite her daughter's many strengths, 
Kristen always knew that there were dangers to guard against. I will say that my daughter had many, many risk factors for addiction, and I was aware of them. I had already educated myself about addiction to some extent, and I had been married to her father when when I was pregnant with her, and when he and I were married, which was just only the first three years of her life, he was an active alcoholism and addiction. So I had lived through that time, and that was really, really, really challenging time for me. We also have alcoholism in my side of the family. So genetic factors, for sure. And there were environmental factors, too, that potentially put her daughter at risk. Her father in and out of her life, her father being incarcerated when she was nine years old. There was um, just a perfect storm of family situations. There was a move. There were several divorces. Uh, I would say none of the adults were in a very healthy state of mind in her life. The stability that we had had really been pulled out from under all of us. I wasn't doing very well, and she just really slipped through my fingers. And I made some really big mistakes at that time, like in terms of showing up for her. I was not at my best at that time. I was not paying attention probably the way that I should have. And I guess she was also good at hiding things from me. So the first time she smoked marijuana, it was the typical story of a girl with a crush on a boy. And she just, she was in a little group of teens, someone, you know, sort of passing around. And she didn't want to feel different or left out. And she wanted to be accepted. And she wanted this boy to think she was cool. That's it. But the problem with, and this is what I know now, the teen time is a time to experiment and be a risk taker. Their brains are wired for it. Their brains are wired to seek pleasure. And so a lot of teens experiment with drugs or alcohol. Let's say you have 10 teenagers experimenting. One out of the 10 will have a different reaction. And that reaction is, this is the answer to pretty much every single thing <laughs> in my life. This is, this is it. I feel so much better. I feel more comfortable in my body. I feel uh, more social. I just feel better. I want more of this. I want more of this right now. I want more of this tomorrow. I want more of this next week. I'm just going to do this. This is great. The other nine teenagers don't have that same feeling. It's not like a light bulb turning on in their brain of, I want to do this every minute now. So that's the difference between an addict and a non-addict, in my opinion. This is when we get into really talking about brain chemistry. I mean, there were times when my daughter was very clear during this crisis where she would look at me and just be like, I don't understand what's happening. Like, how did this happen to me? Oh my God, you know. But, and then the next minute she'd be flipped out and angry and not wanting to talk, you know what I mean? There's, but she'd have these moments where I could tell how scared she was because she couldn't really understand it. Kristen's daughter knew that her dad had problems with drugs and alcohol, 
She'd been given age-appropriate books about addiction. She would tell people that she had to be careful around drugs because of her family history. In some ways, no one was sort of more shocked and surprised than my daughter. So I, I tried to understand it, and honestly, I did some things to try to prevent her from becoming addicted herself, if that was even possible. I thought that I could maybe avoid this situation that ultimately happened by trying to like super show up. And I decided if I kept her really busy in activities and kept things grounded enough that she could have a really good life. And we were always busy. She played soccer. She did performing arts. She always had um, private music lessons. I even joined a Girl Scout troop. And we were really active in that. And my parents helped me even begin to pay for some of these activities because I was a self-employed mother and I did hair, which was good because it was flexible enough that I could take her to all these activities. But it made my head spin how fast she went straight for all the whole stuff that I was trying to avoid. She went right into the nitty-gritty of what I didn't want, which was doing drugs, homeless, on the street, like hitchhiking, saying she was going to hop a freight train, like, all you know, these things. It made my head spin how fast she went right for all the things that I didn't want for her. There had been some early warning signs that Kristen's daughter was struggling. In the ninth grade, she began experiencing anxiety and depression. She was already in therapy to deal with the fallout from her dad's problems. When the therapy didn't seem to be helping with the new issues, Kristen tried unsuccessfully to get her daughter to go into the hospital. Kristen had even taken her to the emergency room, but she wouldn't get out of the car. She was never in bad enough shape to be admitted against her will until she was 16. That's when Kristen got a call from police at the university nearby. The first time she was missing, um, she had been picked up by the Cal Berkeley police. I had gone in the middle of the night and they let me take her with me. They could just tell she was a young girl out there in the middle of the night who probably shouldn't have been out there. And she was with some other people. And, um, Actually, she had, there was a backpack that had drugs in it, but they knew it wasn't hers. It was the first time she was in trouble, and they knew that, and I showed up, and so they just gave her to me without anything else happening. By this time, it was clear to Kristen that her daughter's problems went further than anxiety and depression. And we had never drug tested her or anything. We had no real confirmation of what was happening. But this time, I wasn't going to let her slip through my fingers again, I thought. So I was going to hang on to her, and she was in my car in the middle of the night, you know, when I picked her up at Cal campus. And I decided I was, as soon as daybreak hit, I was going to take her to the hospital myself. So this, this time, I arranged some police officers to meet me at the hospital. So in the morning, she th- I think she thought I was just taking her somewhere else or to school or something like that. But instead, I started driving to the hospital. And I was a block and a half away from the emergency room. And I was looking to see, okay, are the police really going to come here and help me? 
she got really, really, really agitated. I think she kind of grabbed the steering wheel, something happened. We ended up stopping like in the middle of the street. She was screaming. She ended up jumping out of my car in front of the hospital and she ran off. Really that night and that morning, it's, it's really safe to say there was no part of my daughter present for me. She was completely gone. She was a completely different person. And I was just, I was just running around looking for her. And then I got back in the car to drive around. And I think a little bit later, I did see an officer. He was just like, oh, she'll go back home. But our home situation wasn't good. And I just was like, no, she, you don't understand. She's, she's not. This is pretty much every parent's nightmare. Kristen was seconds away from getting her daughter help. And then she was gone. It was like... I experienced what maybe people say when you're having the near-death experience. Like, <laughs> everything flashed before my eyes for the whole pregnancy and childhood. And I remembered I didn't feel safe when I was pregnant with her. I never was safe when I was pregnant with her because I was not, I wasn't in a good situation. I didn't have a stable place to live. And I was increasingly starting to realize that her father wasn't safe for us. And I remember thinking that she was better staying in my body. Here's what mothers do. This I can say for sure. All mothers who have children who are in deep trouble and who are doing self-harm and who are in deep crisis, the very first thing we do is blame ourselves. Universally, this is true. I've talked to so many mothers. We just do. It's the first thought we have in our heads that we messed up. And I was going around the neighborhood and... I just couldn't imagine where she could be. Everybody was just kind of going through the motions of their day. And I was literally like, just in the worst moment of my life. And so I never saw her again after that for like, I don't know, maybe at least a few days. I don't think that I slept really the first few nights um, at all. I alternated back and forth between laying on my bed with my head under my pillow sobbing and just doing action steps, whatever that would, would be. And just like calling, calling the police multiple times, doing missing persons reports kind of thing, and doing research on my computer about just anything. Programs I could try to get her into, trying to understand the system, trying to navigate the health insurance we had, trying to just 
trying to figure out if I could scoop her up and send her to like one of those places in Utah, you know, which I could have never afforded, but calling, 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 calling people, calling people and trying to get help and just in a panic. But, you know, I had to do distracting things so that my thoughts wouldn't get too dark. I mean, you can imagine like a 16 year old beautiful child is just like out there. Any number of things could happen to her. But getting through the nighttime, the whole time, the whole year that she was really in this deep crisis, the nighttime was the worst part, the worst time. Beating myself up and just having worse, scary thoughts. Especially hard if I didn't know where she was. But it wasn't really that much better when I knew where she was. It was a little bit better. But I was always on edge because the outpatient program, they could call and say that she had to leave and I would have to jump in the car and go get her. Or they could call and say she had run away or anything. And during the day, I could kind of maintain my life mostly because I had my other child, my younger daughter, and she really needed to have a sense of normalcy. And she had her routine and she had school and all her activities. And I could focus on her. That was, you know, like a wonderful distraction. (laughs) It just is worse at night because you don't have the distractions. It's just you, you know, it's you there along with your thoughts. Many nights during this time, Kristen found herself awake, despite being physically and emotionally exhausted. I was just needed to be on alert. I was on high alert. I was in that fight-or-flight state where I had to be ready, like jump up and be ready to jump into action. I was jumping into action all the time. I wasn't letting myself sleep. My younger daughter was sleeping. I knew I should be sleeping, but I couldn't. Just suffering, suffering, suffering. Lots of suffering, lots of looking at my phone, hoping she would call me. I don't know what it would have been like to to try to live through it and survive through it without our technology we have now with cell phones. The cell phone was literally my lifeline to her during that year when she was missing because eventually she usually would send me a text. And then I would know, at least for that moment, that she was alive or okay. I spent a lot of time driving around trying to find her, but I don't know what I would have done if I had. I never did find her just when I was randomly driving around. That never happened. But there would be a need to do it anyway, just to be able to do something. I was in so much grief. It's like everything was in slow motion. It was like moving through quicksand. It was like I was going through the motions of trying to be okay. And inside, I was just a mess. I was just a grieving mess. And not to be sleeping makes everything worse. Not to be sleeping makes my mental state so much worse. It made my worry and fear level go up (laughs) significantly. 
Months and months of worry and lack of sleep were taking a huge toll on Kristen. While she had spent countless hours finding help for her older daughter and keeping things going as smoothly as possible for her younger one, she hadn't put much energy into taking care of herself. Finally, she heard a piece of advice from a man at a support meeting. He said to me, you have to give yourself permission to sleep. And he said, if you can sleep, you're going to be so much better when she calls and she's ready for you to come get her. Like, you just will be sharper. You'll be able to advocate for her better. You'll be able to show up. And I'd heard that before, but this time I was ready to really do it and really to hear it. And I really did. I really did. Like, I really was able to sleep that night some, you know, in a better way. Like, I guess it was just a conscious decision. I'm the mother. I set the example for my daughters. And I'm modeling for them how to take care of myself. If I'm sick, it's not going to help them. And I was in such a bad state of, of mind that I could have easily had like a physical health crisis that would just be too overwhelming. And so I slowly, slowly started to completely change my mindset and take better care of myself. I was calming down a lot. And when I could believe that it would be better for my daughter if I slept, both my daughters, I gave myself permission to do it. And if even if it was like three or four hours, I was so much better the next day. It wasn't quite that simple, though. There was something Kristen had to do first. This is what letting go means, and people are, don't understand it. Letting go is not what you think. Letting go, when we talk about letting go of our loved ones who are doing self-harm, it's not at all about not loving them. It's not at all about letting them hit rock bottom because I don't believe in rock bottom because it's death for so many. Here's what letting go meant for me. I had to really make a conscious decision that I had to have a deep understanding that my daughter might not survive. And I had to accept that fact. And then I had to decide for myself that I would survive her death. And I would do it so that I could raise my other daughter. And then I could sleep. But when I did that, she started getting mad at her. It's so miraculous. My our, everything softened in me. My heart softened. It's just I only just had love for her at that point, and I also started to get some really good advice from people in recovery or people who had been through this themselves with their children or people who were working in the treatment recovery field about just keeping my heart connection to her. There was, of course, a lot of anger and freak out, right, that you can just focus on. (laughs) And instead, I figured out ways to keep her 
feeling like she could call me and I would come and get her and I would help her. And instead of being angry, I would feed her a meal and we would talk. In the course of softening and letting go, Kristen discovered a way to gently lead her daughter to safety. And I just kept creating these doors that she could, I could only create the door towards life. And she would have to step through herself and do the work and just at different times over and over again, she just did it. I was always strategizing to get her to choose it though. I would strategize with the professionals and set up the right boundaries and say the right thing so she would just say yes. So I started doing better. I started sleeping more. I started to enjoy little things in my life again. I had more love for myself. And then when my daughter would call, rather than trying to control the situation, I would say, oh, honey, we miss you. We're going to this family party or we're, I'm going, you know, to an event at your sister's school or something. I would just tell her what we were doing and I would just share and I would just tell her how much we loved her and missed her. And then she started coming around the family more. And I remember she was back in her outpatient program. And we were going to a family birthday party. And we were walking in and she said, I can't go inside because they're all going to look at me and say that I'm a junkie. And I just said, no. And she's like, oh gosh, I can't believe it still makes me cry. And I just grabbed her hand. I said, that's not true. I've got you, and we're just going in. Kristen's daughter continued to walk through those doors. Kristen found a residential treatment program that worked, and she fought tooth and nail to make it happen. Her daughter struggled, and she backslid, but eventually, she made it all the way through. There were a lot of things that I had to do. It was not easy getting her treatment, let me just say, but... She agreed to go back into residential treatment. She seemed more ready. Every failure, she had learned some things, <laughs> and we all had. She finished an early childhood education program at the same college I attend, and she works with young children, and she's really good at it. She does music programs with children. It really brings joy to my heart because as you can imagine, like, a lot of these little children and their families love my daughter. She's their beautiful teacher. And so that's pretty amazing. And she's a young mother. She has a three-and-a-half-year-old little girl. So I'm a grandmother, and that is just a joy. Kristen went to college to become a substance abuse counselor and advocate. She and her daughter both share their stories in order to help others. Because we made it and we decided, my daughter and I, to speak about it and be open. And there's too many sad stories and we need some hopeful stories. And uh, now most of my friends are people in recovery or formerly homeless or formerly incarcerated people. And I know hundreds of them, hundreds and hundreds of them. So I know people get well. 
we could just move on and not talk about it. However, I do want people to not give up. We don't give up on anyone. I know so many people that were in active alcoholism or addiction for years, many, many years, who got healthy. I just am proud that we kind of walked through it and were able to do some healing work. And, you know, we continue to just try to do better, and we're always working on it. (laughs) I'm thankful every day. I'm just so joyful that we're here. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Nocturne is distributed by KCRW and receives support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project. Thank you to Nick White. If you or someone you love are dealing with addiction, you are not alone. We've included some links for resources at our website, nocturnepodcast.org, in the show notes for this episode. The Nocturne team includes artist Robin Galante, web guru Eric Peterson, and musical wizards Kent Sparling and Jeffrey Foster. Till next time, thanks for listening.